Welcome to episode five of season three of Upbeat from Everything Conducting, the podcast made by conductors. My name is John Devlin, and I am the music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Enrico Lopez-Yanez, Principal Pops Conductor of the Nashville Symphony. Each week on Upbeat, we discuss concepts related to the field of conducting, and you know the rest. But this week, (laughs) we are mixing up the format yet again, just a little bit, John, uh, in a very unique way. But before we get to that, how are you doing, John? It's been a while since we've been on the mic together. It has. It's like the COVID project that could, and we're keeping going, <laughs> but boy, are we busy. Uh, it's, it was so nice to catch up with you for the last half hour or so as we kind of got into the recording session today, which is a busy one and an exciting one, like you said. Uh, things are going really well here in Wheeling. We had our season-ending concert last weekend. We called it Sunday Serenades and had a basically three ring circus going we had one venue inside because we found out two days before that it was going to be 95 degrees and then we had two outdoor venues that we got tented as quickly as we could upon finding that out and the program was really exciting we did uh two new pieces one by stacy garup uh called uh lo isa goy which is a um, jewish prayer of peace that was originally an acapella work but then was translated for solo viola and string orchestra and and uh, another piece by Clarice Assad called Impressions. And nice. I'm going to shout out Anna Edwards, as we should do often and loudly, because she recommended both of those pieces through her 100 Days of Social Listening project, which right. I took on as a 300 days later of social <laughs> listening project. Uh, and then we also did the Grand Partita, which I had never done before. And if you want the woodwind players in your orchestra to love you with a great deal of enthusiasm, program the Grand Partita. <laughs> How about you, Enrico? What's been going on in Nashville? Uh, Things are going well. We had our first concerts back in the hall this past week with uh, chamber ensembles performing on stage for, you know, socially distanced audience, which was very exciting to see musicians back on stage doing uh, chamber works. And so you were part of the socially distanced audience. (laughs) I'm right. Yes, it was an unconducted program. So unfortunately, (laughs) I was not on the stage as I, you know, would have loved to be. But little by little, we're making steps towards. Full, full reopening as we we all hope for, and then just gearing up for all the the fun and madness that is summer as a conductor, and you know all the different places that I'll be bouncing around to, which will be great. You are my most humble colleague, but I think everyone would love to know since this is probably going to come out after you've done some of these things. <laughs> tell us a little bit about those things you have coming up because you told me what they were and it's really exciting. Sure. So I'll be uh, doing two weeks of concerts with the Rochester Philharmonic. We're doing an all Latin program called Celebración Sinfónica as well as an all-cinematic program. So everything from Disney to uh, a little bit of some, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, a bunch of, you know, movie favorites, which will be great. Uh, Then I will be in Detroit for a couple weeks doing both their soiree, which is their big yearly gala with Renee Elise Goldsberry. Ooh, yeah, and then Hamilton. <laughs> looking forward to being back with her. This will be a uh, third time that I've worked with her. She's right. incredible. If you don't know her music, not even just the Hamilton stuff, just her as a singer and as an artist. And she has a new TV show, Girls 5 Eva, which is on Peacock, an NBC show. Very funny. Uh, and then I'll be there again for their 4th of July concert. And then some other stuff later on in the, the summer with Utah, with, uh, San Diego at their new Shell, which is a cool new venue right on the harbor. Yeah, that's a homecoming of sorts for you, right? Very much so. My family, uh, I'm incredibly excited. I think my family is even more excited than I am just to be able to finally see me, you know, in the hometown with the hometown orchestra. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a lot of things to look forward to for, for us. And it's nice to catch up with you a bit. You want to let everybody know what's in store for this episode today. Absolutely. So this month is focused on all things arts administration, which Mm -hmm. of course is such a wide field and varies depending on the size of your orchestra, the budget, the different types of positions that one person may do. We decided to mix things up and rather than have a 4-4, since we've covered a lot of the, you know, general topic of arts administration, if you haven't listened to those episodes, you can go back and (laughs) hear our two part series of four fours last season. (laughs) That's right. Uh, This month, we're going to have two guests on our episode. So our first guest that we're going to be welcoming is the current CEO and president of the Utah Symphony, 
Steve Brozvik, but I had the great pleasure of working with him for several years when he was here in Nashville as the chief operating officer. And Steve has an incredible wealth of experience with many, many orchestras around the country and is just a very forward thinking, has worked on so many unique, innovative projects with orchestras. So he'll be a really fun person, I think, to, to get to speak with and get to learn a little bit about. And John, why don't you tell us about our second guest? Yeah, speaking of innovative, uh, a name that's going to be familiar to everybody is that of Aubrey Bergauer, who became famous when she was the executive director of the California Symphony. And what was a little bit unique about that path is that, of course, the California Symphony is not one of the country's largest orchestras. But the way that she led that organization to success during her term there made it a national story. She pioneered kind of a data-driven approach to the orchestra business and a way of thinking about the customer relationship that our organizations have with our audience members, our patrons, our donors, our supporters in a much different way. I love her mantra of the audience owes us nothing. We owe them everything. Like we have to think of ourselves as both a conduit for this great art form, but also just a source of entertainment in a very saturated market where a lot of people are competing for dollars and eyeballs and ears. And so, um, Hearing her speak about that with a little bit of time now since she left that position and the new things that she's thinking about and doing, I had a lot of fun thinking through the questions with you, Enrico, that we're going to ask her. And I think it's going to prompt a lot of interesting conversation. And we've certainly done our best to make sure that we're going to prompt her to discuss things through the lens of what's going to be most appropriate for conductors. Definitely. Well, I can't wait to sit down and talk with both of our special guests. This week, we may not have a 4-4, but let's still give our first upbeat and head to the interview after a word from our sponsor. Have your streaming concerts grown stale? Are your view counts starting to dwindle as audiences begin to seek out new, flashier forms of entertainment? Then maybe it's time to give your virtual concerts the jolt of energy they deserve. Presenting Concert Commentators. In partnership with both the NBA and NFL, Concert Commentators provides two legendary sports broadcasters to give the play-by-play breakdown to your virtual audience. In addition to exciting in-the-moment analysis of the action on stage, all of our announcers have been given a quick 30-minute music history and music theory intensive so that they can use impressive musical jargon. And with legendary figures including Ken Harrelson, Chris Berman, Mike Breen, and even Michael Buffer, your audience is sure to feel the excitement of the game at concert. Here are just a couple of clips from some recent beta-tested concert moments. Wow, Jim, you can put it on the board! Yes! Jennifer Coe nailed that cadenza. She's two for two. Check out that breath control from Chris Martin. He could go all the way! Bang! A tremendous development section, Bob, and down the stretch they come, headed to the coda. Let's get ready to ramble! Concert Commentators now also offers a special edition Mexican soccer commentator expansion to engage your Latinx community. So don't wait. Pick up the phone now and hire concert commentators for your next streaming event. Welcome back. We are joined now by Steve Brozvik, who is currently the president and CEO of the Utah Symphony and Utah Opera. He has also previously served as the chief operating officer at the Nashville Symphony, general manager of the Houston Symphony, executive director of the San Antonio Symphony, and vice president and general manager of the Baltimore Symphony. It's a mouthful. You've just been all over the place, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. We appreciate you being here with us. Happy to be here. It's always good to be back with you, Enrico, and John, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much. We're happy to meet you as well. And so uh, Enrico listed all of these wonderful places that you've worked of various budget sizes and in different places throughout the country, all of which, of course, have a lot of different needs. We'd love for our audience to familiarize themselves with you a little bit. Could you just give an overview of the types of things that you've noticed at these different positions and the types of initiatives that were important to you at each? Sure. It's Well, it, as you can see, we've been all over the country. And um, each one of those organizations is very different, even though what we do is, is very much at least similar. 
um, the, the different communities, the different focus of the organizations, different music directors, different artistic paths, um, all of those things make every institution vastly different from, from any other that I've worked in. Um, so that's been one of the one of the interesting challenges is learning, getting into an organization, learning the culture of the organization, the direction, and then it's life within the community and trying to take you know both what you know and then also figure out what you need to let go of because it doesn't work. Um, but so in in each role, I guess the differences of those organizations have driven a little bit of what I've needed to do and the type of person I've needed to be in those roles. A vice president general manager in Baltimore started out as the assistant to the general manager. So I spent my first kind of year and a half there um, working side by side with the person who was the general manager and also the personnel manager of the orchestra. So he was carrying both those roles. I was filling a lot of the day-to-day work. That really allowed me to really get a quick, very quick grasp on what the day-to-day life and needs of the general manager within the organization were. So it was great boot camp for me, just on the ground every day, something new, come in your direction, you got to deal with it. Then I went, uh, I moved up to general manager, Baltimore Symphony split that role again, um, and I was promoted to the general manager position which meant that I then needed to step up up and not only have just the general duties, but also the responsibility for the entire department. And and most general manager positions are structured that it's operations, it's the orchestra, it's maybe artistic or not, and it's usually education and community engagement. So some of the things I've carried with me in responsibility everywhere that I've gone. Um, certainly then when I went to San Antonio, I was executive director. So you have responsibility for the entire organization and uh, even more constituent groups that you have to answer to and try to keep happy. So it's not just this group of employees and listeners. It's also then all of your donors and your board and community leaders, um, which was was interesting in an organization that was at a point of struggle. Uh, it taught me a lot. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Uh, there's some amazing people down there, uh, but it was a tough go. I, I'm not, I won't deny it. It was a tough go from the day before I arrived, actually, um, when we learned some information about a donor. So, it, But it, an extraordinary organization, and I, as I said, I wouldn't change that experience for anything. Um, moving then over to Houston, uh, back to my prior role, really, uh, as general manager, Again, focusing mostly on operations, production, touring, uh, personnel, the orchestra, education. So that very much more akin to what I was doing at Baltimore. Um, moving over to Nashville was very different um, as the chief operating officer, because then I also had all of the fundraising, all of the marketing, had a big role in operating the concert hall and the schedule and the calendar as part of my duties as well. Um, so that was a much more expansive role, and I think, at least I hope, set me up well to return to um, a CEO role in a much larger organization. Um, so it, it's been it's it's been a great journey all the way along, and of course, here it's not just the orchestra. We also have a full producing opera company, and we have this great summer festival and a partnership with Deer Valley Resort in Park City every summer. So it, it's a a nice expansive role and i'm really enjoying it so far and they're keeping you on your toes making you do all kinds of new things that you haven't done before absolutely love that (laughs) so of course one of the key elements of being president and ceo is working a lot with the music director to you know create plans for the season the concerts the events that you'll put on but then also at a larger level you're really driving the mission of the institution can you talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you've found to be a success or maybe some that haven't worked when you're trying to create those plans and vision for the organization? Yeah, probably. And, and this is kind of a keyword for me anyway. Um, you've heard this Enrico probably, you know, 50 times, but especially in that role, that specific task and work for an organization and a community, there's always balance and there's a balance between working with your music director and artistic director for the opera now as well and and balancing artistic desires, artistic direction 
um, and a lot of that is personal, with what the organization or what you see the organization needs to be doing to make sure that you're serving the community in the best possible way. And sometimes those align, sometimes they don't. So find, finding the right path to keep pushing toward what the, the community wants and needs from an organization um, without reducing what we do, without jeopardizing what we do, holding on our artistic direction and quality, but trying to make sure we're, we're still an organization of service to the music and the community and making sure that you're engaging that artistic direction and keeping that really vital and active and making sure that the very real dreams of your artistic leadership are being realized because that's what keeps them going. That's what keeps them effective. That's what keeps them driving the entire organization in a direction. Um, and that can be, I've had situations where that can be very, very difficult because the two just do not align. Um, and I've lived in situations where it absolutely aligns, or at least we've gotten to alignment over time. And it's incredibly rewarding to watch that process happen. And hopefully it's, it's rewarding for everybody in the process. Right. One thing that uh, caught my attention was you said that your time in Houston after having been in San Antonio prepared you to take on that top leadership role at a much larger organization. Could you speak to just one or two of those things that you learned during those experiences in the state of Texas that you brought with you that prepared you to do this large-scale thinking that you're referencing? Part of that, I think, are some of the projects that we, we did, the film projects we did with the orchestra in Houston. I think started to open my responsibility area, my operational responsibility, and the way to talk about programming um, around much larger projects than just creating another week of, of Masterworks classical programming. Um, not that there isn't enough there already, but as you start to add other production elements on top of the repertoire, which is known and loved, and finding paths to make sure that you're not minimizing that repertoire and the performance of it for the audience or for the orchestra or the conductor in the process of adding other elements really opened my eyes and started to prepare me for what would then happen in Nashville uh, with our work with uh, the Nashville Ballet and then coming here with the opera side of what we do. So I think that, that artistically and operationally has, has been an incredible path um, and it's been a progressive path with larger and larger projects. And one thing that you mentioned, Steve, that drives a lot of this was the fact that you're always thinking about balancing the artistic side with the needs and goals of the community. I think a lot of conductors hopefully are also thinking about that in terms of the programming they're choosing is how can they appeal to and serve their communities. But, you know, if you're new to a city, which you've been new to many cities now in your career, how do you go about figuring out what the audience wants and needs? That's not an easy answer. Um, I think some general general things are you know, doing a lot of listening, doing a lot of talking with people, um, looking at what other organizations are doing and being successful with. But I'll go back to the listening. Um, having conversations with people who aren't already there in the concert hall, who aren't already coming to listen to what you do live and trying to start to navigate and assemble reasons why. What are perceived barriers? What are real barriers? Uh, is it about the programming? Is it about the feeling of walking into the hall and do you feel welcome or not? Is it about coming downtown, coming downtown at night? What, what, what are those combinations of things that perceptually keep people away? Is it a simple belief that people they're, they're not going to like what we do? All of those things, I think, can be worked through in a number of ways. But I think first you have to understand what's keeping people away. That's wonderful to hear. Uh, you've mentioned alignment of vision with artistic directors, but you work with conductors at all levels and you have at all these different orchestras. And of course, a lot of our uh, listeners are going to be younger career conductors looking for that first assistant conducting or guest conducting spot. And um, I'm sure that some people that you've worked with for the first time have made a wonderful impression and others have not been invited back. Can you give us a little bit of your tips of the trade to people that have made good colleagues for you and that you've looked forward to working with in other capacities? You know, the first thing is first two things 
you, you've got to bring just physical podium chops to the gig because the orchestra will know instantly when you know what you want and you can show it. And the more you can show and the less you have to say, they will appreciate it. That's been a mantra in every orchestra I've ever worked with. If you can show it, show it. Don't say it. Don't take the rehearsal time to talk through something expansive if you don't have to. Sometimes it's required. And sometimes getting what you need and working through a score together, especially if it's new, needs that. But if you can show it, just go ahead and show it and move on. Artistic vision is the second thing. Just know what you want to say with the piece. Um, a lot of times uh, in assistant and associate roles, we don't give conductors enough time on the podium in rehearsal. I also add that you know if you've got one rehearsal to get through a complex program, you don't have time for a lot of artistic vision. So you just got to get people through it and hit the landmarks and get the transition solid, things like that. All of those things, if you can do it, will usually get you an invitation back. You spoke a lot about the sort of on the podium things and traits that you look for in conductors and the orchestra's perception. Do you have any thoughts or feedback from the administrative side when interacting with conductors off the podium of some of the things that might help their chances of re-engagement or hurt them? You know, is as much as you can um, as a conductor, though you're balancing multiple programs, if you can either yourself or through your manager be efficient in response time to questions, to thoughts about rehearsal schedules and instrumentation, um, be eager to have a, a great conversation with the artistic administration team on the ground. Um, if you can be efficient and responsive, that goes so far with the artistic team on the ground, with the personnel manager, with being able to get ahead of things. And, and, and if you can keep in mind that, if, yes, this is your program and you love it deeply and you want to create that exact perfect program for that performance at that time with that institution in that city. Unfortunately, the st for the staff, that's one week out of 52 that they're thinking about programming. And if they feel like everything is going to grind to a halt because now I have to wait for this response about this overture or just give us some options to talk about, they're going to move on to the next thing. And now you're an afterthought versus getting that real focus. Um, it, it sounds like a really simple thing, but in the scheme of a really busy organization, it does actually matter. Before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you, because as you've alluded to, seasons are busy. There's a lot of programming happening, but it's great when we have those opportunities to move beyond just a traditional concert and do something really special and unique, which you have done so many interesting projects, whether it's some of the ones you mentioned with, you know, NASA footage being combined with the planets in Houston, or if it's the Nashville Ballet collaborating with Carmina Barana in Nashville or the Violins of Hope project. How do you go about selecting in this limited financial world, limited time space, which projects to prioritize and develop in your organizations? For me, it's a lot about finding the right partner. If you, you can find partners who you believe in their individual work and in your early conversations with them, that you get a sense that what they want to do isn't going to just become their project that it will truly be a, an artistic partnership, um, that you develop the goals to get the artistic goals together, the operational goals together, the, the audience goals together, and that e each side respects the other person's art form, then that to me feels like it can be a really successful partnership. Um, with the film projects in Houston and then continued with Carmina Barra, we were very confident in working with Duncan Cop, who's a British filmmaker. We were very confident working with him because even though he's a filmmaker and he brought his own art to the table, for him, it was always about the film serving the music and then together serving the audience. It was never about the orchestra's performance of this repertoire was going to become subservient to the film. For him, it had to work together. 
And that was what we needed to hear on top of seeing some of his prior work that we were intrigued by. But hearing that from Duncan told us, okay, we have the right person. Of course, then you also need to have a very interesting project. Um, the Violence of Hope project was another one uh, in Nashville that we, because the project was interesting, because it had a mission, because it had a focus, we were able to bring 26 other partner organizations in on that vision and it became a community-wide project. But no organization had to feel like they were giving up themselves to be part of it. And for me, that, that, that's absolutely paramount, has to happen. Well, Steve, thank you so much for spending this time with us and sharing with us your experience, but also just your vision for the best way orchestras can serve their communities. I, I kept hearing you come back to that theme, and I think that that's the most important thing that we do, and it's just inspiring to hear these thoughts. Great. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. We'll be back with our next interview guest, Aubrey Bergauer, after a short word from our sponsor. Now that COVID is winding down, we can finally travel again. Soon you'll be at a tropical beach with margarita in hand and not a score in sight. But what about keeping up appearances? If we want our colleagues to believe we live in a sacred artistic bubble, thinking about nothing but Brahms, Beethoven, and augmented sixth chords, we'll have to do some serious planning. Well, let Highbrow Hiatus help you. That's right, Highbrow Hiatus generates fanciful out-of-office replies for your symphony email address that will be sure to impress anyone who writes you, no matter what beach or beer you're on. Highbrow Hiatus has over one million maestro-inspired auto-replies, including... I'm unable to answer your note as I am currently at a perfect pitch retreat where I reside in isolation in a villa in Greenwich, England, while listening to A441 in my AirPods 24 hours a day. For the next two weeks, I will be in Estonia learning Estonian because I'm conducting pieces by Arvo Pert next season. The pieces are in Latin, but I want to be thorough. I'm in Munich undergoing genetic modification to grow stem cell-generated arms in preparation for the first ever performance of Ives Symphony No. 4 conducted by only one conductor. Expect your reputation to fly high as you fly down to Kokomo. No one will be the wiser with highbrow hiatus, keeping the mystique alive. Highbrow hiatus assumes no responsibility if you blow your cover by posting on Instagram about your beach vacation while using our product. Well, welcome back, everyone. I'm so pleased to introduce our next guest today, which is Aubrey Bergauer. She's known for her results-driven, customer-centric, data-obsessed pursuit of changing the narrative for the performing arts. Her leadership as executive director of the California Symphony propelled the organization to double the size of its audience and nearly quadruple the donor base. In 2020, she launched the Center for Innovative Leadership at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music while continuing her consulting practice, empowering large nonprofits to deliver game-changing results. Aubrey, welcome to the Upbeat Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're excited to have this conversation with you because, of course, everyone in our industry has been listening to what you've had to say for a long time. And I think it's really exciting now for us as conductors to be able to tailor some questions for you that reflect those ideas, but in a way that's especially relevant for us. So we'd love to dive right in. Let's do it. So a lot of the conversations that we've been having over the last year, of course, have been centered first around how to adapt to COVID and then re-emerge. And I think that as much as all of those conversations have been important, there's a fatigue that's setting in. And so I thought maybe let's find a way to look at COVID, but through a different lens. And I wanted to ask you, did the last year confirm for you anything that you'd been preaching for many years before that about or orchestras becoming more nimble, more responsive, more adaptive, and thinking about their business model in a different way? Like, did you see orchestras that had been embodying the traits that you thought were best for orchestras? Did they succeed more in the pandemic? Yes. So the pandemic, many, many are calling the pandemic an accelerant, right? It has just accelerated trends, what positive trends or negative trends, it has accelerated those trends. That's what many now experts are saying. And the same has been true with a lot of classical music organizations, for sure. So I would say, I'll say some negative and then I'll say some positive. I, to the negative, it became so clear how far behind we were in technology. 
as everybody's trying to pivot overnight to streaming and those sorts of things, it was very clear which organizations had developed that muscle, so to speak, already, and which were really flailing for a while. Now, the good news is, collectively, we have come so far in developing that competency that that is a huge asset we get to take with us forward. So hopefully, we'll come back to that later. It became clear also organizations don't always have a strategy beyond just how we do business day to day and didn't have much of a, beyond the how or the what, a strategy for why and what, how we make choices based on that. That became very clear, which organizations sort of had that, to, to use your word agile, I think it, it became so clear who who had that sort of culture within their organizations and which organizations did not have that culture. That all became so clear and just exacerbated, accelerated by the pandemic. It was funny. I was just having this conversation. Uh, I was going to talk about the California Symphony because I was just on a call where somebody said, "What has it, it's been almost two years now that I've been gone. What's the California Symphony been doing since you've been gone, Aubrey? Did it, was your success sustainable? Really was the question. And it so happened, Donato Cabrera, the music director there, was on this call as well. And he jumped in and said, yes, that's the whole point. Or that the systems that Aubrey put in place have been continue to be in place and we've continued to just double down on those and got even better at those. And in addition to that, have brought in new ideas and new creative thinking from their new executive director. And during the pandemic have seen continued growth, seen continued, um, not just donations, but they're increasing their subscriber base already going into next season, like all these benchmarks that are like, yeah, that success can continue. So I use that to say that this idea of whatever path I think an organization was on, again, the pandemic really accelerated that. That's great. And I've loved watching how you've continued upon that success and then made it sort of more accessible through your consulting, through working at the San Francisco Conservatory to launch the Center for Innovative Leadership, and all of these sort of development projects for young professionals that are so beneficial to not just that small market, but now you're able to share that with people across the country and beyond. Can you talk to us a little bit about the types of skills or pathways that you're trying to encourage young people towards as they're entering this career in music? I remember when it was announced that the Center for Innovative Leadership was going to be formed and that I was going to be doing that. The response was incredible. I just, I, I was excited about it. I had no idea, just the, the response from the field was just so overwhelming and in the best, po- most positive way that I, it just became, it cemented for me. I knew when I left the California Symphony, I wanted to have an impact beyond one organization. Someday I hope to go back to an orchestra, hopefully a major orchestra. I want to accomplish what we did at the California Symphony at a big budget orchestra. I cut my teeth at a large, multiple large institution. So ultimately that's what I want to do. But I knew for this moment, this phase of my career, I wanted to have an impact beyond one organization. So then fast forward to the consulting started taking off and then we announced the Center for Innovative Leadership. Floodgates opened. And that cemented for me that there is such a need for training. There is such a need to train for leadership, not just how to be an executive director, but how do you lead no matter your role, no matter your level of seniority, how do we foster that type of thinking uh, that we need in our institutions? And little did we know, fast forward a few months that this pandemic was going to hit and really exacerbate the need for innovative thinking and leadership like we've never seen before. So there's bad and good about all of this. The bad is that the Center for Innovative Leadership is now on hold until in-person offerings or gatherings can resume. So I don't know what that's going to look like. So meanwhile, I've developed course online virtual courses to implement this training now, really. The skill sets that I've seen that uh, these are lessons I've learned. Uh, I'm very research-driven, very data-driven. I consume what has worked in other industries and apply those parts that I see as applicable to the performing arts. And so all of these things that have led to success uh, for me, sometimes along a very bumpy road as as I've had to learn things as my careers progress, the point is I don't see training like that available anywhere. And that's what I'm trying to offer now is, is this idea that yes, leadership, you're not innately born with it necessarily. There are skills, there are ways to train in the same way we are so disciplined as musicians and learning that trade and those skills. 
that we don't, we don't match that with our training for our offstage talent. And so that has just become so clear to me that that is, is a way I can contribute to the field that it's, again, this is research-based. This isn't just Aubrey's opinions. This is really what we can learn and then share with others. Could you give us maybe a, a, a sneak peek, an example or two, or if some of the things that someone who participates in this online uh, course would gain or learn from? Yeah, a big one is getting buy-in to your ideas, for example. I All the way back to my first few jobs at Seattle Symphony, and then after that at Seattle Opera, again, these big, major, wonderful, wonderful institutions. But as in my early 20s, right out of college, with somebody with a lot of ideas, really struggled to get buy-in. And some of that was on me. I did it wrong. I, did, I was not always the greatest coworker, and um, I had to learn how to do that. How do you bring others along? How do you manage up to get the green light for a project that you want to take on? Um, that's where I became very data-driven. I learned that if I use data to support what I'm seeing, it's not, again, it's not Aubrey's opinion or Aubrey's idea. It's, wow, this is what the trends are showing us. This isn't, this is now math. This takes the emotion out of it, right? So all of those things are part of the course. And so many early career professionals reach out to me now with some version of frustration, whether it's frustration at their boss or their organization or just the field more broadly. Um, and learning to navigate that is, is a big component of this course because I do not believe the answer is just running away to another job and another orchestra. I, I've been around long enough now to realize that the same challenges or versions of those challenges exist pretty much everywhere. You are not going to leave your job and then immediately go have the best boss in the world who <laughs> wants to grow you and put your professional development first. Like maybe those bosses exist, but it's not guaranteed. So running away from an organization because you're frustrated is not ever my advice. And what I've learned over the years is anytime I've chosen to work through the challenge, whatever it was, to come out on the other side of that makes me such a better employee, manager, thought leader, whatever. And so, again, there are there's research about how to do that better. There's research about how to how to be a part of a high performing team, how to grow a high performing team. How do you set company culture? Whether you're the CEO or whether you're not the CEO, how do you still contribute? So all of those things to answer your question are part of this course. And just to put a pin on it, I would say it is about how do we have impact now? How can we be a leader now, regardless of our role, regardless of our title? That is what I want to train and empower people to do. That's awesome. We should all sign up. Yeah. Immediately. Really yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> like shameless plugs are highly encouraged on the Upbeat podcast. Love it. So um, you've worked with several different music directors, of course, most notably um, Donato at, at, at California. So what traits do you see in not just a 21st century, but a 2020 and on music director needing to embody in order to be successful, whether or not you have a partner like yourself or you don't? It is not about cutting edge programming alone. I will say that. I think, I mean, even the conversation right now in this moment, as people are announcing their comeback seasons, so much of it tends to be focused on the programming, which is good. I'm not trying to say we don't need to have a conversation about programming, but as a general statement in our industry, we overly focus on programming as the solution to our challenges. I believe it is about creating an environment where people feel welcome, where people feel seen, where people feel like they belong, all people. And that absolutely cannot be done without the music director's partnership. That does come down to representation in our programming. Of course, it trickles down in that way. It comes down to the way we administer auditions. Oh, wow, there's a lot I can say about that. And it is some of that's tied to the collective bargaining agreement, of course, which is something the CEO can help negotiate. But wow, that stuff has to start with the music director championing the changes that need to happen there long before the CEO is negotiating the contract, right? So when we talk about creating an environment, I mean, there are still conductors that don't want to speak from the stage. Sometimes I see that and just want to come out and do the thing and wave the baton and give a great performance. And that is not sufficient. And that probably matches more with like, you know, the courses and seminars you went to, because that's not new still to say that. But um but the idea of being a storyteller, that's very important. Being able to 
talk to the audience, being able to let's talk about donors more, fundraising and things like that. I think also uh, what I need from a forward thinking music director is partnership is key. Being able to take the notes I give, we're going to go meet with this donor. The development team has prepared for us these notes about their giving history and their portfolio. And, you know, anytime I'm meeting with a major donor as executive director, and definitely if I'm bringing the music director along, you better believe I have a plan on what we're going to ask for, what we're going to pitch, and what we are hoping to gain from that conversation. So being willing to take that lead and then show up in the way that only a music director can, charming, intelligent, talking about the art in this infectious way that no matter how passionate I get as the CEO, doesn't match what a music director can do and the way you talk about it. So I could go on and on. I'll add one more, which I would be, which would be to say that uh, having a, a partner, a music director partner that's willing to try new things and measure the success. And uh, just to give one example of that, I remember early on at the California Symphony, we were uh, canceling the old way of doing the gala, basically, and reinventing it. And we came up with this idea of symphony surround. And we had, we had learned from open rehearsals that, yes, of course, the donors love sitting on stage during an open rehearsal. That's a, such a different experience than when they sit in the audience for an open rehearsal. Okay, so we knew that. And so then we came up with this idea of what if we had the orchestra surrounding the dinner tables? So, like, everybody's in this big room together. The orchestra is spread out throughout. Everybody's watching the conductor at the front of the room. That's a really different experience. It's a really different gala experience. Well, what does that mean for the conductor and for the orchestra? Oh, God bless all these musicians for going along with this idea. But, but, but being willing to say, it's funny, I say this in the time of COVID, but that person's going to be eight feet away from me and I have to <laughs> listen to them. Now seems a little bit more feasible or just like more realistic because we've been dealing with that. But in 2015, 2016, 2016, I think when we first tested this idea, it was like, let's just try it. We know the old gala is not producing for us in the way we need to. Can we just try it? And it was Donato who was like, yes, yes. And I, and I was like, I need your help because who knows what the musicians are going to think about this bananas idea. And so he was helpful and he was a partner to be able to say, we're just going to try this. This is not about our recording that we're going to release commercially. Like it's not that kind of a performance. This is about having fun and getting these people ready to raise their paddle and donate because they are so in love with what we are doing and to have him be able to help create that sentiment among the orchestra made all of the difference. And that, yeah. So I just give that example of, yeah, that was a weird idea that everybody could have been like, hell no. <laughs> and, and they didn't, they said, we will try it. We will at least try it. One thing, Aubrey, that you mentioned, which I loved, was the idea of setting up an experience for the audience. It's less about one particular thing, the programming or the ambiance that evening or what the orchestra is wearing. Who cares? It's this overall experience. Right now, during this time, of course, conductors hopefully are at least thinking about well, programming is an easy thing that I can start affecting, and we can do these other things organizationally, but we have to take some ownership over the choosing of the repertoire at the very least. Colleagues, that there are certainly places where some administrative teams are a little more hesitant to try you know, more diverse representation in terms of the composers or the soloists that are being represented because they're saying things like, oh, it won't sell or we need to do something safe financially. So just put more Beethoven or put more Mozart back on the program. What would be your advice to these conductors of how we can encourage or really get our teams on board with us in trying to make this more inclusive, more equally representative type of experience? few things on that. One, programming, I am not saying carte blanche, program whatever you want to program. Anybody who's worked with me on programming knows that is not how I feel at all. I do believe in inclusivity and representation for sure. Anybody who's followed my work knows that about me. So what, how, what's the balance between all of that? Programming absolutely is strategic. Like I said, we, we tend to overly focus on programming as an industry, as a singular solution. Uh, we do need to be strategic about it, uh, even though I believe it's not the whole solution. And that's, I'll get to that other part next. But where I'm going with this is to say, 
there is no shame in pairing a work we want to champion with a blockbuster piece. No shame in that. I always think it's, I always kind of scratch my head a little bit when I see like the new music festival or whatever being announced by some of these institutions where I'm like, why? Why? We say, you know, in classical music, the more a piece is familiar or a composer is familiar, the better it performs at the box office, period. So we know that we have literally centuries of data telling us that. So there's no shame in pairing something that's a blockbuster with something that we want to shine the spotlight on. I believe that. Uh, the way we market that really matters though, because it's a problem then when all the marketing is like Beethoven, 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 and this other thing on the program. That's not good either. So, um, but in terms of programming, yes, let's be strategic about it when we're just specifically what's on the program. Yeah, we can be smart about that. Also, when we program matters. Never, ever have I recommended the incredibly adventurous program right before subscription renewals. We're not doing the Schoenberg Festival right before we announce the next season, okay? Let's put such a blockbuster. No shame in that either. These pieces that people love and respond to, let's do that right before we hit them up to renew their subscription. Let's do that. It's a very general statement. Our marketing teams have to up their game. And that means changing the way we talk about what we do using different words that aren't full of either overly descriptive or full of jargon, because that goes right back to if somebody doesn't know what a concerto is, they're not going to want to come see that program necessarily, or I'll flip it. If it's words they understand a hundred percent, they are more likely to want to see what that is about. So I talk a lot about reducing our technical language and our jargon and all these things that most people in life, because they're not music majors and there's been a decline in public music education because of all those things, today's grown adults who are very smart need a different type of marketing. So our marketing becomes synonymous with education. So that's a lot in response to that question, but it's just because it's not about programming alone. That's why. The the next question we wanted to go into, uh, I think, encapsulates exactly what you said. I, I I had said, you know, this idea that if we could just market this program better, we would reach new audiences. And, you know, for years and years and years, we've been reading your articles where you say, no, like you need to think about what's it like to visit your website and then what's it like to park and then what's it like to find dinner beforehand and then what's it like to be shown to your seat and then how are you spoken to and what do the lights look like and every one of these aspects that for-profit industries have been thinking about much more critically than we have for the longest time. So, you know, that, that stuff's all out there. People can read it if they haven't yet. But what do you think conductors can do to either energize that thinking within an organization or in the ways that we can influence that final product from beginning to end? What are ways that we should step up to the plate? Great question. So right on the heels of what I said before is none of this is just the marketing department. None of it. The, the music director, the conductor can be a part of every single one of these conversations and then many times decisions of what I'm talking about, regardless of the budget size. Because even at a major institution, that music director, it's usually their name on the letterhead, they are at the top. It's the, it's the three-legged stool of CEO, music director, and board chair. And they have every responsibility to insert themselves into these conversations and be a voice for change and progress. So, and, and then again, like you said already, at a smaller organization, that happens a little more naturally anyways. So no matter the budget size, I believe the music director has an obligation to be a part of all of these conversations. So more specifically, what does that look like? Okay, well, creating an inclusive environment is across all kinds of things. So I already said music director needs to champion updates to the audition and process, for example, uh, the music director needs to champion writing program notes differently. This is what I mean. It's not just the marketing department. It's not just the editorial team. Let's talk about these program notes. Who's writing them? In many cases, a very qualified musical scholar. Okay, that doesn't mean that person's not capable of writing in a more approachable way where they're not talking to their peers who are musicologists, but they're talking to people who don't have that foundational understanding because it was never taught to them. Sometimes people can adapt their writing style. Sometimes we might need to find somebody different to write the notes. That is a conversation the music director can be a part of. The music director or conductor, I mentioned this before, but speaking from the podium, 
I believe the conductor needs to welcome the audience from the stage. They are guests in our house. We would not be there performing if we didn't have a sea of people paying to watch us do what we do. I believe at every performance, somebody needs to thank the audience. And ideally multiple times, whether it's over the God mic or a pre-recorded video or the conductor coming out with the mic and saying, no matter who you are, first time or long timer, I am so glad you're here. Thank you. That matters. It matters to hear that from that leadership figure on the podium. I'm like frantically trying to make all these mental notes because there's all, like every answer. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's great. Oh, I have to tell a marketing team. Oh, I have to tell them. We clicked record, right? <laughs> but I mean, you've given us so much great information. I'm wondering to sort of wrap things up for for young conductors in particular. What would you say for these young conductors is one or two pieces of advice that might have the biggest impact on, on our careers going forward when we're just trying to get started in this field? Okay, well, you heard me beat the drum of stop thinking programming is the solution to everything. You have so much more potential as a conductor to have impact so beyond that very narrow set of choices. Uh, I would say also... Uh, along the lines of that, and we've touched on this already, do not act like it is your vision and you just need the staff to figure out how to do it. Know that your ideas cost money. <laughs> um, I would say, and with that, be patient in enacting those ideas. So at the California Symphony, Donato and I, it took us, it took us a while to get to this place, but I realized he would come with all his good ideas when it was time to talk about the next season and do that planning. And he had great ideas, but at that point, the budget was so formed, basically, that it was like, ooh, I don't think we can add another quarter million dollars to be able to pay for a fill in the blank. So instead, we got to a place where he had a running wish list, ideas he had, people he wanted to bring, whether that was soloist or guest conductor or commissions he wanted to undertake, other projects in the community, whatever. He had the running wish list. So then I had a runway. You're hearing about a grant where it was like, oh, that's the project. That's what we're going to submit for that grant. Or over time, because we were growing our donor base and I'm meeting these different donors and learning what are they interested in supporting. And every donor you know, has their set of things that they want to put their money behind. Great. Then I had, wow, talk about an arsenal. I had an arsenal of projects ready to match with them. That took patience on his part because I definitely had to tell him multiple times, we can't make that happen six months from now, man. So just sometimes it takes years and that's okay. We, that doesn't mean it's a no. It means it's a We'll get to yes, <laughs> just hang on. <laughs> so there's that. And then I'll say one more thing on everything I talk about with retention efforts and the experience. I, I believe this is a shift also broadly for our industry. We need to get away from the music director being the face of everything. I think that is a real disservice to what we're doing. I am a big fan of spotlighting the musicians more, telling their stories more it's I mean I can get all into all kinds of sports analogies and why that's effective there but just really highlighting the breadth of talent that we have well for an orchestra to go down that path that takes a lot of commitment and uh I was going to say humility but I also think strategy on the part of the music director to realize no, I don't have to be the face of everything. And I don't mean publicly. Uh, in some ways I do, although I will add to that, I believe the CEO needs to be just as public as the music director. I think that's very odd sometimes that the CEO, it's, it varies by orchestra quite a bit, but sometimes the CEO is completely in the background. And I think that is bizarre what CEO of a company does that. So there's that publicly, but um, also this goes back to our marketing materials for example, at the California Symphony, and, and now several of my consulting clients, those newcomers, when they're getting a follow-up offer, it's not the picture of the maestro arms spread wide with some dramatic you know, shot of the conducting. Because if somebody's been once, first of all, they might have not even seen that person on the podium the night they came. Second of all, I think assuming that was the central, most memorable thing of their experience is quite a leap. So instead we used images from the concert they came from or highlighting more of our musicians, uh, 
things like that. And so that for a music director to go along with that, it says a lot about that person's commitment to the broader goals of the organization versus their own ego. And, and like I said, that's a big shift from how it's been done for so long. But even if somebody doesn't have an ego, it's still a shift from just the marketing, the way we've been doing it for a very long time. So there you go. There's a whole bunch, <laughs> a whole bunch of advice and thoughts on that. Well, that's incredible. I mean, we cannot thank you enough. And again, just We'll continue to encourage our listeners to look into all the great offerings that you have in terms of resources, your online course, because there's clearly so much that you can teach all of us in the industry. And it's not just the administrators, it's the conductors, too, that need to be really attuned to all of this. So, Yes. Thank you for saying that. Aubrey, thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a real it's a real pleasure. I what you all do, your role is so important and so specific. And I just I'm really honored to be a part of the conversation. And now. The Coda. Well, welcome back to The Coda. Enrico, what a great duo of interviews we had today. I learned so much, and it's just nice to be connected to people like that who have such a vision for the way leadership can best serve orchestras and and our communities. Absolutely. And one thing that I noticed and love is that though both Aubrey and Steve had a wealth of information and we're saying things differently, there is certainly a core message throughout both of those, which is this need to really think about the audiences and the experience that we're putting out for concerts, for you know, just the whole evening that you spend revolving around the orchestra and asking those important questions and thinking about that and how you can affect that change at your own you know, micro-community level, I think is really important. Because... There's this narrative that people enjoy classical music less year by year, and we tend to blame external forces. And Aubrey even mentioned, you know, the diminishing amount of education in our field through the school systems. But couldn't we also look and say every other industry, most of which are for profit, that we compete with for people's entertainment dollars, they are modernizing their product as much as they can all the time the movies are recording with better cameras and the picture and sound are getting clearer or the, in the sports stadiums, they're thinking about how to integrate your cell phone into being part of that experience in a very critical way. And the, the camera angles are better, all, all this different stuff. We have basically not changed our product or the way it feels to be in our concert halls since concert halls began to exist. And that has to be part of the problem too. So I really like this way of thinking where we ask ourselves hard questions. But I think what this, these conversations also revealed is that there are no easy answers. Right. Yeah, it's oftentimes easier to ask the hard questions of ourselves and point out the problems. But then it takes a lot more initiative to sit down and say, okay, we know what the ideal solution is. How do we get to that solution? What is the process that we have to implement and the work that goes in behind that to make that possible? Because it's easy to blame, oh, you know, we're marketing this poorly or, oh, we don't have a, a hall that is appealing or comfortable to sit in. Okay, well, just acknowledging that is one step. But now how do we take that a step further and really put our brains to work and say, What's the solution to that? How do we work around it? Some of the things are unmovable, but there can still be ways to, you know, navigate around that and make a solution possible, even if it's not ideal. We can't can't build a brand new hall every year, but we can certainly think about ways to still make it accessible or still make it fun and engaging for our audience using the tools that we do have at our disposal. Right. And I think some of the ideas that our guests contributed can be part of those solutions. We talked about Steve's innovative project design. How do we perhaps take a masterworks style piece, add something to it that doesn't diminish the musical art, but creates a more vital experience? Or with Aubrey, I think this data-driven approach that she's been talking about for a long time can manifest itself in so many different ways. But being able to give more people the type of experience they want, not just in the concert hall, but in the way we they relate to our organization when they're in their homes, mm -hmm. 
if that's via social media or the way we email them or the way that we present our product as they decide if they're going to buy a ticket, all of these things add up to progress. And I think as long as we are always making progress, we'll be able to keep up with those other industries. One of the important things that Aubrey did mention was, you know, we can't only rely on the programming if we want to truly change the experience. But next month, we are going to acknowledge the fact that programming is still important, which she also mentioned. So next month, Everything Conducting is turning towards the topic of programming, uh, which we here on Upbeat will be doing as well. And to do that, we'll be having the assistance of one of our other EC team members, the music director designate of the Omaha Symphony, Ankush Kumar Behel, who will have just finished creating and programming the season that is now announced and publicly available for his upcoming sort of premiere with the Omaha Symphony as our new music director. So that'll be one of the ways. John, I'm sure you and I can come up somehow with a few ideas to share on programming as well (laughs) with our audience. Right. So we're going to look forward to, I think you and I in the 4-4 will probably outline some of the strategies and specifics around our upcoming seasons. And then we'll welcome in the second half of the podcast, uh, Ankush, as you mentioned, as a guest. Well, we look forward to having you all back on our next episode. In the meantime, check us out on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, and please feel free to rate us and share with all of your friends. We are at Everything Conducting on both of those platforms, and we look forward to having all those conversations with you. You'll hear them on our next Upbeat. Upbeat.